All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of the... We're okay? All right. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be finishing out chapter 7 today, on into chapter 18. Where in the narrative, our Lord begins to minister to Gentiles, the Syrophoenician woman we covered the last time we met, today the deaf man. Before the feeding of the 4,000, which arguably also directs toward the Gentile mission, we'll take a look at that as well. But first, an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, we finished our last meeting by studying chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, with the Syrophoenician... Of course, this is the woman whose child has a demon, and she asks the Lord Jesus to cast it out, and of course demonstrates her incredible faith in the process. If you have a Lutheran study Bible, page 1671 directs your attention, including the Gentiles, to the Gentile mission of our Lord, even at this stage in his ministry. And of course, then, that takes us to the new material, chapter 7, verse 31. Then he, our Lord, returned from the region of Tyre and went to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So as your study note points out, Decapolis, literally ten cities, the region southeast of the Sea of Galilee, which puts us in Gentile territory. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. You know, one thing I'll point out tangentially here, these people know who he is. It's not like he just shows up and the disciples have to be like, hey, everyone, this is Jesus. He can do neat stuff. The word of him has spread all throughout the region. Wherever he goes, he is known. And that is the case here as well as evidenced by the fact that they bring to him a man who is deaf and had a speech impediment. So those two things obviously connected. You've got these deep and rich theological undertones with the Syrophoenician woman and the demon possession. Only Christ can cure that. That's obviously spiritual in nature, but here too, being able to hear and to speak are key parts of the gospel and the themes really of all the gospels, because it's the theme of our Lord's preaching, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. So there's a recovery of spiritual hearing, and with that then, the recovery of a spiritual speaking. That's always underneath the physical healing, the spiritual reality. So here is no different. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately. What we see here in our Lord's healings is it's often the case that it's not one size fits all. And it's often the case there are different nuances. Here he takes them aside privately. We're not told explicitly why, but he simply does it. And instead of laying his hands on him or instead of speaking to him, he does this rather strange thing. He put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. 
you have all kinds of discrepancy in the history of interpretation of this verse, what it means spitting and touched his tongue. Did he spit and then touch his tongue? Did he spit on his finger and then touch his tongue? Did he spit on his tongue? I think you've got all of these uh, various options in the history of interpretation on this verse. The language is, is simply too ambiguous to know for certain. But as he is suffering from deafness, you have the fingers in his ears, and from muteness, you have the touching of the man's tongue. I'm not going to sermonize on this. The next time it comes up in a lectionary, I'll sermonize on it. How's that? But I will simply say the obvious. It's, it's pretty intrusive. Jesus is putting his fingers in the ears and touching the man's tongue, going inside his mouth. Presumably the man can't hear. <laughs> so imagine that. You're deaf and you can't speak and Jesus is in front of you. You can't hear what he's saying if he's saying anything. And since he's Jesus and he's intelligent, he's not. Because <laughs> he knows it's going to fall on deaf ears. So, and then Jesus sticks his fingers like this. There's, there's no command to you know, open his mouth per se. Um, just in comes, the, in comes the finger or whatever it was. So an intrusive kind of healing. And then all the more wonderful and enigmatic, verse 34, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. So it's remarkable. I don't mean to overread the text, but it seems as though his eyes are upon heaven. He sighs, which is enigmatic, and then he says to the man, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released. And the language there being passive, it's not necessarily demonic, but it's certainly a result of sin, a result of demonic influence, a result of the fall in the general sense. This man's, uh, the good faculties that God has given to this man to hear and speak have been taken from him, and now Jesus is returning them to him. So his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, which echoes taking the man aside from the crowd privately in 33. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I think the only wrong take, <laughs> I don't know if it's the only wrong take, but probably the main wrong take is that Jesus is using some sort of reverse psychology here. I don't believe that that's what's happening at all. I believe that the Lord really means for them to not go out and proclaim this thing. But the more he charged them, so... <laughs> which, which I don't know is curious, isn't it? The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. It must have been right there, and it must have been sort of like word spreading, and Jesus repeating himself, and word continues to be passed. That's my best guess of what's going on. But again, it's a little ambiguous as to what the nature of that is. 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So we again see Jesus exhibiting his strength over those things that we have no ability to overcome. 
And we see also Jesus being portrayed in an enigmatic way, which is a frequent hallmark of Mark's gospel. Jesus is presented as powerful, as mysterious, and I think to some degree it's contrary to the, to the artistic spirit of Mark to try to explain it all the way in a way that makes sense. I think that it can be done. I just think that if Mark wanted it to be done, he would have done it. Or he would have done it here and there. The portrait that Mark is taking pains to present is a portrait that is best not over-explained precisely because it's intended to impress upon you the mysteriousness, the awe-fullness of being in the presence of the Lord and being in the presence of one that one can't, that you can't fully comprehend. You can't fully comprehend him. You can't fully understand what motivates him or why he does what he does. You can't comprehend how it is that this human being is more powerful than these forces whether they're demonic or whether they're in the world, the curse, or whether they're in relation to sin, he's simply more powerful. And that fills one with a sense of awe and biblical fear. And I think that that's really what Mark's after. Let me pause there, see if you want to reflect any further on this text. Tried to leave the sermonizing out as much as possible and just give you what it's saying. I'm curious, in this set of verses, it uh, refers to the word they three times, and I wonder who they, uh, they are, mm-hmm. and, uh, because in the commentary on, on verse 37, it says, the Pharisees will demand more signs. Do you think that they were the Pharisees, or were they caregivers and group of people who... I mean, we know that the Pharisees are following Jesus around, because they'll want to catch him no matter what. But I don't think that they're in view here. This is Gentile territory. I, I don't think that they're in... This is, um, this is Tyre. Uh, yeah, they go from Tyre and Sidon over to the Sea of Galilee. On the southeast, I think, of the Sea of Galilee is where the... Decapolis is, these ten cities, we're outside of, we're in Gentile territory, let's put it that way. And I think that that's, if you look at the summary study note in your Bible on 31 through 37, Jesus heals another person in a Gentile region, further emphasizing his love for every race and kind of people, I guess. This serves as yet one more example of why we need to avoid the temptation to narrow the scope of the mission. Yeah, I don't know who's doing that, so I don't understand that part of the study note. But the rest of it, I mean, the other part of it, namely that they're in a Gentile. So I don't think the Pharisees are in view here. I think this is Jesus. You know, and he's got these... They're peculiar, too, because he goes into the Gentile territories and he's known there, but frequently it's one individual that he goes and helps. Or at least that's all that's reported. And then, boom, he's back in the homeland, so to speak. <laughs> but doesn't he do that with the, with the man with the demon in chapter 5? He goes to the country of the Gerasenes. That's also southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And so he heals this. So he's, he's doing these little, these little field trips into Gentile territory and demonstrating his power and claiming a, a person. And then back he goes to the house of Israel, so to speak. So the they here, probably his friends, family. That's my guess. Is there any reason to not see that? They brought him a man. Jesus charged them to tell no one. Yeah, I would guess friends and family of the man is in view.
Anything else? All right, chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. Now, again, because in chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. We'll do maybe some minor comparisons here. Yeah, chapter 6, verse 30 is the feeding of the 5,000. All right, here in 8.1, he calls his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So a pretty profound statement of his attraction that they're forgetting to even eat. Maybe they've run through their provisions, whatever provisions they might have brought in the three days. I mean, three days is kind of typologically significant, but again, I'm going to try not to sermonize on that. Jesus has compassion on them, and then verse 3, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. There is a very real, I know this is hard for us to understand, but I, there may well be a real chance, like a real um, possibility of danger. Like may, when he says that they may faint if they're three days away from home, uh, he, it may well be life and death for some of the people. So I don't think we should exclude that. His compassion on them is more than, oh, their tummies are grumbling. He's concerned that they will literally faint on the way and perish. Okay, so his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? In chapter 6, they were in a desolate place also. So apparently they didn't learn their lesson. And that's, again, one of the themes. So acutely, when you look at the Syrophoenician woman, the disciples don't have the faith that she, as a Gentile woman, has. And then that's also a theme here in the feeding of the 4,000, is that the disciples should have developed their... They've been in this situation before. They should have, their faith should have developed to where they'd expect the Lord to do something. But it hasn't. So they are still hard of heart, so to speak, while the Gentiles, by contrast, don't seem to be. So verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha, this is the only mention in the New Testament, says the study note, most likely on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, what differences do we notice? Well, prior it was five loaves and two fish. You still end up with seven. Here it's just seven loaves. And the seven loaves are taken with the formula, the same formula used for the feeding of the 5,000, the echoes, or really, I mean, this is kind of the fun. So Jesus uses this language. And think of this from his disciples' perspective. So so, So he... He takes the loaves, he gives thanks, he breaks them, he distributes them. That action. 
okay, that sort of ceremonial action. The disciples themselves see it for the feeding of the 5,000. They see it for the feeding of the 4,000. They see it in the upper room when he does the same actions. uh, Two of them in Luke's gospel see it with the road to Emmaus encounter, that same formulaic behavior. So all of what I'm trying to say is for the disciples, all of these events would have been connected because they see Jesus doing the same ceremonial action. And then, of course, when they go to record this, they record these events with the same ceremonial actions so that you, the hearer, or in our modern world, you, the reader, will make the same connections they made. So there's a kind of catechesis that goes along with this. How, you know, how can Christ take something finite, his body, and distribute it infinitely on altars or upon tongues all over the... Well, how can he do that with bread and fish? But he does. He can take that which is finite and make it infinite. He can take that which is in and of itself not enough and make it enough. There's lots of lessons that can be learned. So there is a kind of catechesis toward the Lord's Supper that takes place in the Gospels themselves and as experienced by the disciples in the original context. So we're seeing some differences. Five loaves, two fish versus seven loaves. We're seeing the same formula of taking them, giving thanks, breaking them, and distributing them. We're likewise seeing that he gives them to the disciples and the disciples give them to the people. And that becomes a reflection on the nature of the pastoral ministry, the apostolic and pastoral ministry, that all that the disciples turned pastors have to give, they themselves receive from the Lord. It's the Lord that provides, he gives it to them, they distribute it to the people. So these verses do play into our understanding of ordination and our understanding of the later pastoral office. All right, and then at seven, we're told they had a few small fish, but no specific number, just bread and fish once more. I think the study notes say that this is a second course. (laughs) Likewise, he blesses them, and he says that these also should be set before the people. So, again, inferring that the disciples are the ones to distribute. They ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Do you remember what it was before? Twelve baskets full. So twelve for the twelve tribes of Israel, what is seven? Is it just the God number? Maybe so. Uh, Some speculate, again, the context being Gentile in nature, that one could consider there to be seven chief Gentile nations around. I think the study note even hints at this. Seven may represent the number of Gentile nations surrounding Israel. See page 345. There were 12 baskets of leftovers collected in 643, a number representing Israel. So it may be a stretch to think that this is a number directly representing the Gentiles. If it's not the Gentiles, what is it then? Probably just the fullness, which thus also is the Gentiles. Seven being a number of fullness, a number of completion, uh, God's number. So, that, so I think either way you skin this, it's, it does have some kind of reflection on the Gentiles being incorporated in. I think that I can see any way why most commentators probably go that way, or at least those that are conservative and Lutheran in nature. All righty. How do we contrast that? What's that read? I think that this is an interesting aspect. So you see Jesus dealing, again, you've got this fearful, enigmatic motif. You've got him conquering the, the demon that's got the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. You've got him rebuffing her. You've got Jesus 
healing the man, the deaf and mute man, on his own terms, in his own strange and enigmatic way. You've got him defying the crowds. I'm not going to heal him in front of you. I'm not going to heal him the way you want me to, laying my hand upon him. You've got Jesus sternly and repeatedly admonishing them to not spread the word of this event. So you have kind of a strong, dark, enigmatic, powerful, um, maybe even like not nice kind of profile of Jesus heretofore. But then what do you see by contrast? That here he has compassion on the people and their hunger. And he fears for their safety. Again, this is more, I do really believe that this is much more, I think our modern view taints us. This is much more than like, oh, their tummies are rumbling. They need some sandwiches. Uh, He had compassion on them and bought everybody Chick-fil-A. That's not what's going on. He sees that they're in mortal danger in departing from him. And he has compassion and he fills them unto satisfaction so that they can journey home. So I I think part of what's going on in terms of the painting the portrait of Jesus is seeing that Jesus is compassionate and maybe reflecting on the nature of discipleship that following Jesus has, it just in and of itself has perils. You'll lose yourself and find yourself in a precarious and dangerous place. (laughs) That frequently happens. And nonetheless, he has compassion and he sustains and he satisfies and fills his people. So I think there's some deeper kinds of themes in terms of the personality of Jesus as painted by the evangelist and given, given to us as hearers. All right. Any thoughts? Any reflections? Okay, so 11... The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Yeah, now, okay, do you think that if he did the sign from heaven, they would suddenly be like, okay, we believe? Of course not. He's done many such signs from heaven. So this is... This is something they persistently pester Jesus with. And it's a way to, I, I think some of this is kind of cultural. It's a way of denying everything, the validity of everything he's done before. Maybe you can glimpse that, how it's kind of like, well, it's sort of like if I were to say to my wife, like, hey, could you make us a meal for once? <laughs> The inference is that she's never made any meals before, right? So when they say, could you please do a sign from heaven? It's as if he's never done a sign from heaven before. So the way in which they're wording it, the very, the very essence of their demand negates everything he has done before. You see how it's not, I mean, we're not dealing with good faith people here. We're dealing with people who in their very request are negating everything he's done. All right, so the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. So in in close, close context, we have two different sighings going on, don't we? Here's a sighing uh, over the stubborn unbelief of his own people. Previously, there was a sighing over the deafness and muteness, which, again, I think the way that Mark would have us think about that, it's not just the physical. Physical is a picture of the spiritual. Sighing over the deafness and muteness of man in his fallen state. This is not how he, Christ, formed us. This is not how he made us to be. This is what we've become and so he sighs and repairs it. Likewise here in the, just this persistent, nasty unbelief, negation, argumentative, accusing, he sighs deeply in his spirit. 
And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So the study note simply puts it this way. Jesus refused to provide a gratuitous show of power. (laughs) And that's right. The only sign given to such unbelief will be Jesus' death and resurrection. Because in a parallel in Matthew 12, 39, he says no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. That as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. So that's their sign, is the resurrection. I wonder if this is, let me see if they say anything about generation. No, they don't. But I do think it's an instance of how generation is used more fluidly in the Bible, in the scriptures, than it is um, in our common parlance, where we think of like, Generation X or Generation Y or the Baby Boomers or whatever the case may be. Um, Generation can be any group of people that's united together. That can, it's kind of grouped together. That can be a generation. So I think it's at least an example of the fluid way. I mean, has he literally shown signs to the peers, to the generational peers of these Pharisees? Yeah, he has. So generation here is being used more fluidly. It's just one of many instances. Okay. He left them, got on the boat again, and went to the other side. He doesn't, he doesn't march to the beat of anyone's drum. Okay, let's see if you have any thoughts. All good? Okay. So, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. And see, now we're reflecting on the spiritual undercurrents of everything that's been going on. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven For the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? (laughs) It's great. It's great. So we see people besides the disciples getting it better than the disciples. That's a theme, and it's a theme, you know, I, th- I think as you reread this, it's a, th- it's a sort of theme of humility in our discipleship with the Lord, to recognize that just because we're his disciples doesn't mean we're experts. All right, well, let's go through this in maybe just a touch more detail, make sure we get the sense. So we're told the circumstances that they had forgotten to bring bread, they had only one loaf with them in the boat, but there's no conversation about this yet. So the first, that's just background information. 
the first event that takes place within this little episode is Jesus saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What leaven is that? Unbelief. I think that that's the, it's the leaven of unbelief where, remember how leaven works. You put in just a little bit and it grows exponentially. And so that's the idea here is a little bit of unbelief grows exponentially. A little bit of antagonism or hatred toward grows exponentially. Um, Herod is also extremely hypocritical. That's Herod is just, I mean, the name Herod would mean hypocrite because here's this guy who pretends to be a good Jew, is rebuilding the temple, but is licentious and wicked in every single way you can imagine. So he's kind of got this exterior form where he's trying to, everyone, look, I'm rebuilding the temple. I'm a good Jew. I'm, you know, pious. Well, inside he's just, you know, rotten filthy, dead. And the Pharisees, too, they think they're righteous. Christ calls them you know, whitewashed sepulchers, this kind of thing. So their own self-righteousness, their own unbelief, their own hardness of heart, I think all of those things, generally speaking, would inform what he means by the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, that which puffs up to where they will not receive the ministry of Christ. Okay, now they hear this, and where did their minds go? Leaven, that sounds like bread. I'm hungry. We didn't bring any bread but this one loaf. <laughs> so immediately their minds, far from being elevated by Christ's words and enlightened, are darkened and cast downward toward, hey, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> it's just wild. So that's what happens. All right, and then Jesus is aware of this and says, what? <laughs> this is so funny. Why are you discussing that you have no bread? <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. It's, I think this is hilarious. Okay. Do you not yet perceive or understand? So here he is dropping like spiritual truth on them, and they are literally worried about like crumb. We forgot the French fries. All right. Are your hearts hardened? Now, I do think that there's a kind of tenderness and a kind of concern. There is a way to read Jesus, and I think it's really interesting. I mean, why not? But to read Jesus as asking questions in a kind of innocence and purity and simplicity. I think sometimes we immediately infer, or frequently we immediately infer, that, well, Jesus knows everything, and if you know everything and you're asking these kinds of questions, then they're digging kind of questions. They're almost insulting kind of questions. He already knows the answer, and so the the question is really an accusation, really kind of a spear. But if you read Jesus as genuinely not understanding why these people don't believe. (laughs) It really makes for a fun and fresh read. So Jesus asked them an absolute, like he's just dropped this profound truth on them about leaven and the, the spiritual leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And then suddenly they're talking about like scraps of earthly bread. And what if Jesus is just legitimately like baffled? Like, why are you doing this? So he's, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Like he's, so he's asking these questions. I mean, sure, it can come across as an accusation, but it can also come across as like, like I genuinely don't get it and I'm concerned for you. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, okay, before we pivot to do you not remember, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Obviously, that harkens back to previous healings, but it shows how degraded creation has become. That God gives eyes, but the eyes don't see, and he gives ears, but they don't hear. He gives spiritual sight and the ability to listen spiritually, and these things are all degraded and gone. Now, in that is also a a possible reflection on idolatry, because... All through, like Isaiah, for example, 
you who worship idols will become what you worship. So an idol is deaf and dumb. As you worship it, so you become deaf and dumb, blind, unfeeling, all the rest. Made of wood or stone, not flesh and blood. So um, that may well be here too, especially if you read this as more of an accusation. Um, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear. Not only a degradation of culture, but a, in, in giving yourself over to idols, you have become like them. All right, well, that's an aside. I don't know. I don't even know if that has much bearing, but it's worth, it's worth having in mind whenever Jesus uses that kind of language. All right, and do you not remember is the pivot upon which the rest is built. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. Now, what's the logic here? I think the logic is, okay, first of all, do you not realize I did this miracle? Second of all, do you think the 12 was a coincidence? And I think that that's really his argument, is, okay, do you, do you think that we would have had 12, like, do you think that happened by chance? <laughs> right? And then I think the second, I think, I think that this is Jesus, like, I mean, okay, we can talk to the cows come home about, like, is there a level two or three or four meaning here, or whatever the case may be. But I think the fundamental rhetoric functions in just this way. Verse 20, repeat, and the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. He said to them, do you not yet understand? Like, do you think this happened by chance? So, obviously then zooming all the way out, why are they worried about the food they're going to eat when he can literally satisfy their hunger anytime they need? That's the overarching point. Why are they so unbelieving? Why are they so blind and deaf, as it were? Isn't, but it, it seems more training in this sense, the way he's talking them. He, he understands they don't get it, but he's slowly bringing them about. Where, where the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're just becoming dumber and dumber. Mm, so yeah, they, they, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no excuse for them. They, they, they're going down the trail to being stupid. Mm-hmm. And so where the, where the disciples are not, they're, yeah. they're slow in getting it, but at least they're getting it. Right, yeah. right. I think you're exactly right. And, I, and again, in terms of like the portrait of Jesus that Mark is painting, even when his disciples are obviously spiritually blind and dumb, I mean, he'll chastise, maybe, he'll poke, he'll, you know, but it's, but it's for their good, right? He loves them, he loves us, even when we're spiritually blind and deaf. He loves us, he has compassion on us, he's willing to bring us along. And that would, that would be a take-home. While those who reject him outright, the Pharisees, no time, no time. I mean, he just, there's an argument, maybe they're doing the arguing, who knows, um, they seek from him a sign, and he basically says, nope. And off he goes to the other side. So, yeah, there is a difference between those who don't understand because they reject him and those who don't understand but believe him, right? Believe in him. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point to draw out. Anything else? Yeah, please. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so delightful. I discovered this. Yeah, yeah. So the good teacher doesn't spell it all out, but lets them. And it's true. I mean, Jesus does. Do you not yet understand? Don't you wonder what their answer was? We don't get it. Probably silence. Probably embarrassed silence. Yes. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that is at the heart of it. All of this is catechesis towards the Lord's Supper, ultimately, because that's the, that's the great miraculous feeding that Jesus does. And so all the lesser miraculous feedings do ultimately point to that reality. I mean, that's why it is the New Testament, right? That meal in which we partake of bread that is his body, wine that is his blood. Yeah, so I think it is fair to connect those. So Jesus here says, having eyes do not see and having ears do not hear. Now we just saw the spiritual deaf man, so what is Mark going to weave together? The blind man. So he comes next. So you have Jesus mentioning sight and hearing. We've done the hearing, now on to the sight. So at verse 22, my point in all this is look how intentionally Mark has woven this all together. Look how this is literary art, not just a random collection of like, oh yeah, and then what happened next? Good, write that. Right? There's a lot more intentionality and art that's present here. Okay, 22, they came to Bethsaida. Now they're on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now we're going to see similar themes. Look at 23. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So again, he defies the crowd. I'm not going to do it in front of you. I, you know, I, I mean, certainly there's this idea of like, I'm not your circus sideshow. But there's also just a lordship of like, I'll do what the crowd wants. In essence, I'll heal him, but not, the, not at the time, place, or way of their choosing. So I think that there's a, I mean, obviously there's a sermonic point to make here that the church in America, by bending over backwards to, you know, believers, unbelievers, hey, how do you want it? Oh, Jesus wants it that way too. It's just so contrary to the nature and spirit of our Lord in the Gospels, where he's like, no, it's this way. <laughs> Take it or leave it. Uh, we have somehow managed to turn Jesus into a used car salesman, and maybe there's no better book in all the world than the Gospel of Mark to show you how antithetical Jesus is not on his knees begging and pleading that you will come, please put your trust in him. And Jesus is not selling you a you know, really good used car at a really great price. Uh, he's doing things his own way, and that's probably precisely what's attractive about him, is he's not bound, he, does, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care about the crowds, he doesn't care about the numbers. And it's beautiful, it's wonderful. So look what he does. Um, very much parallel to the deaf man. Uh, they come bringing a man, begging him to touch him, He's not going to touch him right there in front of them. He's going to take the man away. He leads him out of the village. And then instead of touching on him, instead of touching him, he spit on his eyes. So the idea of him spitting on his fingers and touching the man's tongue is not out of question. He spit on his eyes. And laid his hands on him. This is so great. This is just one of my favorites. And he said, uh, he asked him, do you see anything? <laughs> and he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. It's just great. Just so great. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So again, the enigmatic nature and the, I mean, if you or I did a miracle, it'd be like, okay, now go show everybody and make sure that they know it was me. Uh, no, Jesus, it's not, he could care less about what the crowds think. So he doesn't want to send this man to them. He sends him home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, what's, what's so, okay, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So the worst possible take on this is that Jesus somehow ran out of gas. Right? <laughs> he only got the man. <laughs> or that Jesus somehow messed up the healing, didn't have his spiritual antenna set quite right, 
And that's the worst possible read of this. It's impossible. It's stupid. It's dumb. Anytime you read the, or hear that in a sermon, you should just laugh out loud. It's I'd shame, maybe shame the pastor a little so he senses there's something wrong. All right, what's really going on here? What's really going on here is a healing in stages. So when Jesus says, do you see anything? I mean, (laughs) it's just great. It's such a great diagnostic question. (laughs) Do you see anything? He looked up, I I see men, but they look like trees walking. Now, whatever significance you want to load into that, fine. But does he yet see clearly? No. No. So Jesus lays his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, which is obviously the point. So what does Jesus do for this man? He heals him in stages. He goes from seeing nothing, to seeing better than nothing, but not clear, to seeing clearly. And that then, so now you've got the deaf man and the blind man, You've got Jesus saying, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear. You have Jesus addressing both of these physical realities, the point being that we reflect on the spiritual realities. And when it comes to his disciples seeing, they and we will be brought to sight in stages. Baby Baby steps. That's the point you're not going to see everything clearly all at once. Jesus will heal your spiritual sight in steps. That is precisely the point. So you're saying it's just like justification, sanctification, and then glorification. And this is the sanctification part. We're slowly getting to be seeing and we we will eventually see when we get the glorification yeah i don't know for i mean for my money i would rather not try to integrate justification sanctification frame here and i would just say this is the way it is when you come to jesus or rather when you're brought to jesus maybe it's by your parents as soon as you're born and they bring you to jesus to be baptized maybe it's somebody else who brought you to jesus when they brought you to church or whatever the case may be. Or maybe this is some for you, for me, a collection of many such instances. But when you are brought to Jesus, you are brought to him spiritually blind. He will heal you, but not all at once. What Christian is there that goes, okay, um, I didn't see Jesus, and now I see everything exactly clearly? It's none of our experience. If that was our experience, we wouldn't be here right now <laughs> doing this. We, we would already see clearly. We would already... So I think, I think, you know, again, the idea is that Jesus heals his disciples, will heal spiritual blindness in stages, just as he healed this man's physical blindness in stages. And I think if you wanted to maybe go one step further, you could even say... In this life, we're like the man who sees and thinks that everybody looks like trees. That is, we see, but not quite yet clearly. Or as St. Paul says, in a glass dimly. That's the kind of reflection. But we will be brought to fullness of sight. We will see everything as it is. If you take that approach to this text, then of course what's in the back is the beatific vision that to see God is finally when you see clearly. Until we see God, we're not seeing clearly. So obviously that's a little overlay over the text. That's a little more than I think Mark himself is trying to do here. Um, I think what Mark himself is trying to do here is weave these themes of physical deafness, spiritual deafness, physical blindness, spiritual blindness, Jesus healing in a strange way, um, jamming his fingers into ears. I mean, Jesus literally going inside of this person, um, jamming his fingers in his ears and his fingers on his tongue. And then here Jesus spitting on the man's eyes in order to heal them and healing him in stages. The other thing you might see is you might see these things as repulsive. 
And I think that that's fine too. I think that's a great meditation. The Jesus ways of healing, they're not the sanitary ways the crowd wants. Oh, lay your hand on him. Oh, touch him. Jesus is like, how about if I do this and this? How about if I do this? <laughs> so what, what meditation can we have on the grotesque ways of Jesus? Well, those or the, or the unattractive ways of Jesus. I mean, that, that precisely parallels the means by which he heals us in the spiritual sense. Baptism itself appears to be nothing to people. And in some cases, because of the language that Scripture uses and the conceptual framework that God gives us for baptism, baptism is a drowning. How, you know, charges were made against Christians that they drown their children. That is, they baptize their children. So it has a grotesque appearance, right? Did they really drown their kids? Of course not. They baptize their kids, drowning the old Adam. What's the Lord's Supper? And what's the obvious charge? The Romans charged the Christians of cannibalism. Because why? They said it was symbolic or spiritual. No, because they said we're eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood. They were charged as cannibals. But again, think of the way the Lord does that. It's by design that under like the most disgusting thing, cannibalism, he hides the most beautiful and wonderful thing so that it can only be apprehended by faith. So I think that there's a parallel here in the fingers going in the ears and the fingers going in the mouth and the spit going directly on the eyes, that these are things that are unattractive and bizarre to us. And I think that that's a nod to the way that Jesus works sacramentally. Unattractive and bizarre. But if you receive it, you'll hear and you'll speak. If you receive it, you'll see, albeit in stages. Please. Yeah, um, just uh, by way of observation because sometimes I see it a little bit differently when the picture that I get in my mind is when Jesus uh, touches these people like for the healing uh, like when you cut yourself don't you you know you, you, you just, uh, wet your lips or whatever mm. I remember when my daughter got cut her eye and it was dirt in there the first thing my instinct was to you know I stuck my finger in my mouth, but I, I needed to wet my finger so I could wipe and see clear what the cut was. Mm, mm. So what, the, what I'm saying is, it's, to me, it's a picture of intimacy. Mm-hmm, I wouldn't mm-hmm. do that to just go up to a stranger and then wipe them, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but, right. but it's an intimate contact, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. therefore it's personal. Mm-hmm. And so that makes, when he says, don't tell anybody or mm-hmm. go, just go your way, it's, it's just because it was something that was between Jesus and that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he also know that Mark is going to record this. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, fair meditation. You know? Yeah, fair, fair thought. There is a kind of intimacy there. I mean, certainly intrusive. There um, often, especially with like the spit, because you've got the spit involved with the tongue, some way, shape, or form, even if he spits on the ground and then touches the tongue, but you've got the spit connected with the tongue in one way, shape, or form, and then the spit connected with the eyes. Um, you can find in the church fathers, so the idea that um, you've got this idea of coming, being formed from the mouth, so the tongue being reformed and the eyes being reformed. And so just this sort of idea of from his mouth we were created and from his mouth we're being healed, that kind of thing. Um, the, with the mute and the deaf, you've got this. So you do have this Genesis-like imagery involved. And then with the ear, so the idea being, um, remember when he takes man out of the earth and forms him from the earth. And you've got this sense of like, in front of Jesus is this clay that's not working. And the ephatha be open. It's like he's refashioning the ear canals. It's like he's refashioning the mouth. And doing so with his own fingers, refashioning the mouth with his own spit, with his own saliva, right? Um, Remoistening the eyes with his own uh, with what proceeds from his mouth, with his own spit. So there's, yeah, I mean, in the history of interpretation of this passage, you'll find the church fathers meditating along those lines of the recreation, which, of course, there's intimacy there, but the recreation motif. 
All right, anything else we want to do? We got maybe a uh, second. Let's see. We don't. We got negative seconds, but you want to make a, you get the last word today. Make it, make it good. Please don't refute me. I looked, no. <laughs> I looked up saliva. It's 99% water. Mm. And a person produces half a liter to a liter and a half a day of saliva. Oh, my. It's so... It's just the 1% that's icky, huh? Okay. So you've got water there. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Water from the mouth. So it's your gut. Christ normally uses the word to heal, but he's using water and spirit, and actually it's coming from him. Yeah. And it's a visual, you know, an allegory for, or is it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. imitation of baptism. Yeah, especially in a culture that's like sort of pre-germ. Yeah, how do you, how do you perceive saliva? It's like mouth water. Right. <laughs> All right. Good reflection. I, I don't. Th- I mean, I don't think it's off base. You'd probably find some reflection like that somewhere along the line there. Yeah. No, this is very anti-gnostic, isn't it? Yeah. Matter is the very means and mode through which he heals. Absolutely. Thanks for drawing that out. That's a wonderful point. All right. That's it. The Lord be with you.